0: I was in college, I liked to sleep in. I kind of look like this guy on the picture you can see right here in front of you. Many of you uh, parents might have some returning college students home this weekend, and this is kind of what your house looks like right now. God bless you. Um, but uh, in fact, <laughs> I, uh, I did like to sleep in. I was the one who did not go and uh, sign up for the 8 AM classes. I was the night owl in college. My roommate was the opposite. Now, surprisingly, we're actually still friends to this day, uh, by God's grace, but he was, he was really kind and always tried to let me sleep after his class was done. Uh, except for one Tuesday morning, I remember very vividly, uh, he ran into the room and told me I needed to wake up and turn on the television, and this was the image that I saw that day. Of course, that Tuesday was September the 11th, 2001. Where were you when that happened? where were you when? right? Every generation has its where were you when question about some cultural seismic event. Where were you when Neil Armstrong walked on the moon? Where were you when you heard about JFK or Martin Luther King Jr. being shot and killed? Where were you when you heard about Columbine or 9-11, as I just mentioned? See, some of those examples predate many of us, but there is one new one that we can all share, and that's this. Where were you when COVID-19 shut down the world? Moments like this are big. They change things. There's no going back. They're cultural shifts. Our lives are never the same. Now, unfortunately, many of these things tend to be negative events, tragedies, catastrophes, and they strike with no warning and introduce a new sense of uncertainty into our lives. Is this sounding familiar, right? Does it sound a bit like 2020? (laughs) What a year. What a year. Has there ever been a year filled with so much uncertainty, uh, at least in our lifetimes? I mean, this one has to rank in the all-time top ten of unexpected happenings and uncertain events due to ongoing uncertainty. That's like the word of the year. You could write a sci-fi novel or a movie straight out of the headlines, Either that or the headlines have been straight out of a sci-fi thriller. You know what's on the list, right? We've been living this year. We have global pandemic, economic recession, mass unemployment, political division, cultural upheaval, racial issues, record wildfires, complete with fire tornadoes, extra powerful hurricanes, murder hornets, and floods. Am I missing anything? In fact, I want to show you a few of my favorite memes that I keep seeing on social media for this year. Maybe if you're a Big Bang Theory fan, you're like Sheldon, all of a sudden everybody's Sheldon, right? <laughs> you got you got you know, masks and you're sanitizing everything. Or with Star Trek fans, I've seen this one a few times. How it feels like waking up every moment in 2020. Damage report. Or if you're a fan of the new Mandalorian series, here's Baby Yoda up here. I almost completed my 90-day trial of 2020. How do I cancel? How do I get to 2021 really quickly, right? Now, back in 2012, the end of the world was all the rage because of a Mayan prophecy about the world ending on December 21st, 2012. And after living through 2020, some of us are asking, did, did the Mayans get it wrong? Like, we're, we're, it's, it should have been eight years later. As a result, this year, a new word was created. Now, if it's not the new word of the year officially, it probably should be. It's the word doom scrolling. It's perfectly fitting that this new word has been added to the lexicon because it's when you scroll through your news feed on social media on your phone, you're just thumbing through these headlines and all you see are doom and gloom. We've probably all done it. Now, hopefully we haven't done it before bed and then you couldn't sleep that night, but that that may have been the case for you. All of this means that cases of anxiety have been skyrocketing this year. In fact, I suspect that many of us are wrestling with anxiety as we get into this holiday season. Now, I heard somebody define anxiety this way. To be anxious means you are troubled by, a disturbing, by disturbing suspense. To be anxious means you are troubled by disturbing suspense. For example, you might be anxious if you were served a live alligator for dessert because you would be troubled by the disturbing suspense of whether you would eat your dessert or whether your dessert would eat you. And that's how 2020 feels, right? (laughs) Like we've been served a live alligator for dessert. Anxiety is the anticipation of pain. Now, I'm not trying to bring us down here, actually quite the opposite. But this is the reality that we've all been living with for quite some time. It's been a tough year. And if there's ever a year that we needed Christmas, it's this year. If there's ever a year that we needed the hope of Christmas, it's this year. If there's ever a year that we needed Jesus Christ, my friends, it's this year. It's good that we've made it to Advent. We're almost to Christmas. And so as we enter Advent 2020, so many of us, I dare say, all of us are longing for hope in the midst of uncertainty. When will the chaos end? There's a vaccine a couple weeks away, we hear. And that may be a good thing, but as we enter Advent, I want to ask you an even greater question. Where do you find your hope? Because this year, I want to invite you to rediscover Christmas, the message of hope found in a manger. Now, what is Christmas? What does Advent teach us about hope? What does it teach us? Well, first, I think Advent teaches us that hope is born in disaster. Second, hope catches fire with a spark And then finally, hope sees beyond our circumstances. And after a year of anxiety, I think it's time to rediscover the hope found in Christmas. So let's pray before we dive into God's Word today. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace, Lord. We thank you that you are the God of hope, that you're a God who provides hope through your glorious gospel and the sacrifice of your Son and the gift of your Son that we remember this this holiday season, Lord, this Christmas season. I pray for my friends who've walked in here today, for those that are watching at home. I ask that you would just impact hearts and minds and that you would um, draw us closer to you, even in the uncertainty, Lord. Help us to find you and trust in you more deeply. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, instead of jumping into the Christmas story right away, I want to take us back a few hundred years, as Pastor Dave alluded to. Um, If you are experiencing some fear, anxiety, or maybe even PTSD this Advent season from 2020, you can probably resonate with the people of Judah in 2 Kings chapter 24 and 25. And so I'd like to briefly finish up the last part of that story I started last week, because it does lay the groundwork for the hope that's found in Christmas. Now, you may remember we finished our King series by talking about King Josiah, the last good king of Judah. And after his grandson dies, uh, after he dies, his grandson eventually takes the throne, and we read this in 2 Kings 24. It says, Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned for three months and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, a familiar refrain we've been seeing in these books. Now, you're probably saying, well, why did he reign only three months, right? He's 18. He should have been reigning a lot longer. Well, that's because Babylon has now risen to prominence, taking over Assyria as Judah's chief enemy. And King Nebuchadnezzar of Daniel fame is on the scene. And so he attacks Jerusalem a couple times, actually. He attacks it first, besieges it, captures Jehoiachin, and brings him to Babylon. And this begins the ultimate fall of Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, the final days of the kingdom of Judah are pretty terrifying, and they actually would make 2020 feel like a mild headache. After Jehoiachin is taken to Babylon, King Zedekiah reigns in his place, and he eventually rebels against King Nebuchadnezzar, which makes Nebi a little bit upset, and then this happens in chapter 25. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The city was besieged till the 11th year of King Zedekiah. For quite a while, they were besieged. Now... The full might of Babylon has been brought against the people of Judah, and they were fierce. Now imagine that you're living in Jerusalem during this time. Just take yourself back a few thousand years. Right? You're under house arrest. You can't leave the city for fear that your enemy is going to attack you. Your supplies are running short, and then this becomes the reality on the ground. Verse 3, it says, On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. So after being locked in their homes for four months, I know we can't picture that, the grocery stores run out of food, the ancient Near East equivalent of toilet paper has been gone for months. Up until this point, they had hope of rescue. They were holding out hope against their enemy, but now they're scared and they're not sure what's going to come next. Will they survive? Will they face death from the Babylonians? Will their family members survive? Will the economy of Jerusalem ever get back to where it once was? Yeah, I think we can resonate with the people of Judah, right? And then, and then, the final crushing blow comes, verse 4. It says, Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by nights by the way of the gate between the two walls. But the army of the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. This is King Zedekiah they're chasing. And all his army was scattered from him. Verse five, then they captured the king, that's King Zedekiah, and brought him up to the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, at Reblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and they put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. (laughs) Wow, right? Now, I'll bet years later, All the people who lived in Jerusalem got together and they were asking themselves, where were you when the walls came crumbling down? Where were you when they plucked out the king's eyes? Where were you when Jerusalem fell and the enemy overtook us? The walls are breached. The king's defeated. Disaster has come to the city. And it only gets worse from there, right? If you read the next couple verses, you'll see that Nebuchadnezzar and his army Spare no expense. They lay waste to the city. The walls are reduced to ruin. The temple is pillaged and burned to the ground. Homes are destroyed. And then they bring out all the local leaders and execute all of them before the eyes of the people. The 2020 didn't have anything on 586 B.C. And finally, we read this in verse 21. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. So after our journey through 1 and 2 Kings, you get to a scene like this, and this just brings me to tears, right? Because first Samaria falls, then the people of Judah are besieged, and finally Jerusalem, the city of David, it it's falls. The people are in exile. It's, a, it's an unimaginable nightmare. Nobody thought a year before this, this was going to happen. Now back at the beginning of March of this year, many of us heard about this mysterious coronavirus that was uh, going in China's population. The city of Wuhan and then the the country of Italy, they were under lockdown. People couldn't leave their homes, besieged by an invisible virus. And we watched the news and all of us looked there and said, "Ah, that's never going to happen here. (laughs) That could never happen here. And then the walls are breached, right? In fact, if I can give an image to 2020, it might be this, that of a soda can, Right? When I was younger, my friends and I would guzzle these things down, right? Coca-Cola was my... F- yeah, in fact, I even got one with Santa Claus on it. They would guzzle it down. We would drink them. In fact, uh, you know, back then, they actually gave you 16-ounce packs, can- you know, packs of six packs, but now they're like five ounces. I don't know. Um, we'd drink them down, and then when we were done, we would play a game. We would see who could crush the most soda cans. Now, this is the way 2020 has felt like us. Many of us feel like we're an empty soda can, Right, the, the fizz is gone, <laughs> it's been drained, it's, it's hollow, Right, all the caffeine is gone out of it and we're running on fumes and we think as if anything couldn't get any worse in 2020 then all of a sudden this happens, the can gets crushed <laughs> and this is the way we feel as we enter Advent 2020, like a crushed soda can. And here's the thing about the crushed soda can, right? It's, it's, it's not going to go back to the way it was, right? You can't, you can't undo it. Have you ever tried to undo it? No. Nobody ever does that. This is, this is like the new normal for this soda can, and you've got to stay six feet away from it. <laughs> We're plagued by what's coming next, right? We're not sure what's happening. Now, now I want to contrast two conversations I had recently. The first one was with my grandmother on the phone. I haven't seen her very much this year. Um, You know, we want to stay safe. And so we uh, uh, were talking about the whole situation. And she said something that struck me. She said, you know, none of us have ever been through anything like this before. And we just just don't know what to do. Right now, that struck me because (laughs) all my life, my grandmother always knew what to do. If I had a question, I could ask her. She had lived much longer than me. She had wisdom and experience. Surely she would know how to handle any situation. And yet this time, 2020, she didn't. Nobody does. And I got to tell you, if your grandmother's, your 90-year-old grandmother's is asking you for advice, it's going to be a pretty rough year. Now, I had a second conversation with another friend at breakfast this week, and, and he was reflecting on this moment in history, and he he said... We are right where God knew we would be last year at this time. I'll say that again. We are right where God knew we would be last year at this time. And I thought for a moment and said, you know what? That's right. Right? Nothing surprises God. He was not surprised when Jerusalem fell. He was not surprised when COVID came to America. When disaster strikes, God is in control. When the walls fall, when the temple burns, God is in control, and hope rises from the ashes of those moments. Hope is born in disaster. It arises when we don't know what to do, because so often it's in that moment that we finally run to God. Are we running to God this Advent season, or are we obsessing over the crushed soda can that is our lives I think so many of us are on this anxiety loop that we've forgotten how great and how good our God is, and that's a word we need to hear today because he knows. He knows exactly what we're walking through. He's not surprised. In fact, instead, he wants to reignite our hearts for hope. When disaster strikes and we're in the ashes, all our, ho- all our hopes need is a spark to start a new fire. That's the second point. Hope catches fire. With a spark. Now, several years ago, The Hunger Games were the most popular movies of the year. It took place during a dystopian future, kind of like 2020. (laughs) Jennifer Lawrence rose to prominence as Katniss Everdeen, the mocking Jay, who would lead the revolution to overthrow the evil leaders in the Capitol. In fact, the second movie was entitled Catching Fire, and the tagline was Every revolution begins with a spark. And that's the way hope works. We just need a spark to capture our hearts of what could be. Now, the story I just told you about the fall of Jerusalem is depressing, right? The city's destroyed. The king is blind. The people are prisoners. And some of us right here are asking, is that really how the story for the people of God ends? And the truth is, not with God. He always has a plan. <laughs> not with God. He always has a plan, and so Second, king, Second Kings ends with a curious image that lights the spark of hope in our hearts. Chapter twenty-five, verse twenty-seven says, "And the thirty-seventh year, in the thirty-seventh year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the twelfth month, on the twenty-seventh uh, day of the month, Evil-Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison." Huh? (laughs) This is really an odd place to end the story of kings. This weird king who reigned for three years, he's freed. Why is he worthy of mention at the end here? Remember back a few chapters before the fall of Jerusalem, Jehoiachin was taken captive into Babylon. He was 18 years old when he was king. He reigned for like three months. Babylon attacked Jerusalem the first time, they took him into exile, and now, after Jerusalem has fallen under his successor, he reemerges not as an 18-year-old boy, but a 55-year-old man, no longer a prisoner, a free man in Babylon. What are we to make of this? It continues, verse 28, it says, and he spoke, and he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon, this is... The Babylonian king to Jehoiachin. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life, he dined regularly at the king's table. Wow. Now Jehoiachin, again, was king for like three seconds, and yet somehow he finds favor in a foreign land, one that was at one time hostile to the people of God. What does this teach us? Well, as we've learned, the books of First and Second Kings have a pretty dismal narrative arc, right? They begin with the death of King David, and they end with the fall of Jerusalem. And yet, at the end, right here, the end of the book, this is the very last section, the very last verses, there is a ray of hope, a spark, if you will. And we're not told the whole story, but we're given a glimpse, a king of Judah, An heir to the throne is still alive. And amidst all the bleakness, amidst all the disaster, amidst all the darkness at the end, this is what the writer of the Kings wants us to see. Hope is alive. All it takes is a spark. It's a whisper that something is coming in the future. The writer of Kings is fulfilling our longing for hope. The royal line of David is still intact. God's promise to David was that he would always have an heir on his throne. And, church, this is what Advent is all about, as Pastor Dave alluded to before. This is a season of hope. Advent is all about hope. In fact, again, the word Advent means coming or arrival, and the season is traditionally a time of expectation, of waiting, of anticipation, and longing. Advent is not just an extension of Christmas. It's a season that links past and present and future. Advent offers us the opportunity to share in this ancient longing for the coming of the Messiah, to celebrate his birth and be alert for his second coming. Advent looks back in celebration at the hope fulfilled at Jesus' coming, while at the same time looking forward with eager and hopeful expectation of, his second, of, his, of the coming of Christ's kingdom when he returns for his people. During Advent, we wait for both. It's an active, assured, and hopeful waiting. And it only takes a spark to get us there. Now, even though we might feel like crushed soda cans right now in our lives, let me take this down and give you another image. An image of a match. Because again, hope only takes a spark to get it going. And uh, I don't know about you, but I'm never really great at lighting matches, but it really is a cool image because this match has some stuff at the end of the tip that if it just is struck at just the right moment, at just the right angle, A fire starts, right? And this fire can now be taken everywhere. In fact, if I put it on something up here, it might catch fire and start it burning, which I will not do. (laughs) But you get the idea. When the fire is lit, when the spark, it only takes a spark to get that fire going, and that's the way that hope works. A spark will get you moving forward in the future. Once it's lit, who knows where it can spread? Christmas is all about this spark, the anticipation of the birth of a new king. In fact, the the fact that King Jehoiachin is alive shows us that Christmas can happen even in Babylon. Christmas can happen even in Babylon. And that's where many of us are this year, right? We feel like we're having Christmas in Babylon. Our world seems to be crashing around us. We're prisoners in exile. Do you feel that? Right, turn on the news, do some doom scrolling, or if if you're a follower of Christ, it feels like you're in a foreign land that's hostile to you. But even as we have Christmas in Babylon this year, I wonder if we could be people, the people, who light the spark of hope. Could we, as we do every Christmas Eve, light our light, let our light shine bright in the darkness, pointing people to the light of the world? The fact that King Jehoiachin is alive is the spark that lights the fire of hope. And once we have that hope, we're able to see into the future beyond our circumstances. And so that's point three. Hope sees beyond our circumstances. It sees beyond our circumstances. Now, we started the message talking about anxiety that disasters bring. In fact, some people say there's actually a category of anxiety called disaster anxiety. Right, this is the type of anxiety that's ca- categorized by seeing disaster around every corner. You drive by a deadly car accident, and you start picturing it happening, happening to a loved one. Or a friend gets sick, and you picture it happening to yourself. Or you start catastrophizing your life, and, and hope seems elusive. Whatever your circumstances, once the spark of hope is lit, it helps you to see beyond those circumstances. It's future-oriented. And so the prophet Isaiah spoke boldly to the people of Judah. He spoke several future-oriented prophecies that we read at Christmas time, And he told the people of Judah what is to come in the future. Isaiah 9 reads like this. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone." Now, I imagine the people of Judah were having some de- disaster anxiety during the fall of Jerusalem and their exile. And Isaiah speaks to them and says, You may experience doom and anguish, you may be walking in darkness, but literally the light will flash on you. Do you know how the tradition of Christmas lights got started? Right? Modern Christmas celebrations began in the Mediterranean world where the darkest day of the year was December 25th. The lights weren't merely decorative. They were symbolic of the light coming into the darkness, into our disaster, into our uncertainty. That is what Isaiah is speaking about here. Advent is the anticipation of this light coming, and that's why Advent brings hope. Hope exists before the reality of the baby's birth. Let me offer an illustration. You can hope with all your heart that I have a $100 bill in my pocket and maybe by the end of the service I will choose one of you to give it to. And you can think about it. You can expect it because now I've got you thinking about it. And you can tell yourself and keep believing that it's gonna happen, that maybe you'll be the one who gets the $100 bill and you can hope that by the end of the service you might be $100 richer and take your, your family out to a nice lunch or dinner. But as soon as I give you a $100 bill, hope is done. There's no need for it. You can't keep hoping it will happen because it already has. The point is this. When you are in the middle of a crisis, that is when you need hope. When the crisis is done, you don't need hope anymore. Hope precedes our present reality. Hope is, by its very nature, existing in the uncertainty before. It exists in our questions. It exists in our doubts. It it exists in the unclear sense of what is to come. But hope is the willingness and desire to believe beyond what our present circumstances and reality are presenting to us. What were the people of Judah hoping for? They were hoping for Messiah, the true king to come and bring hope to their people. And they waited, and they waited, and they waited. They waited in exile. They waited for 400 years when the prophets did not speak They were silent. And Isaiah makes this promise to the people of Judah. Later in chapter 9, he says, For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Would you want that king to rule? Beyond this present reality, beyond this circumstance, Isaiah says a king will come. He will come as a baby. He will establish a righteous government. He will take the throne of David. Now remember, if Judah was listening... These words would have had special significance after the fall of Jerusalem because the kingdom is wiped out. Hope seems lost, but they still had the prophecy. One day the true king will come and return hope to the people. Who is this king? Which gets us back to king, old King Jehoiachin in 2 Kings 25. Why did the writer of kings end with this weird story? Why is it significant that Jehoiachin is still alive? Well, we only see this significance if we fast forward to Matthew's Gospel in the New Testament and read the genealogy in the opening chapter. And I know you're saying, well, oh, genealogies so boring. I always skip over those parts. (laughs) You shouldn't, (laughs) because genealogies in the Bible are always important. In fact, ancient people preserved genealogies to include prominent ancestors. Jewish teachers at the time would tell you that genealogies showed God's faithfulness. That God was faithful to preserve families for a purpose. What does Matthew's genealogy show us? Chapter 1, verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, which is Jehoiachin, another name for him, was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. <laughs> Now, Matthew's genealogy takes us specifically through the history of Judah, and who shows up? King Jehoiachin. Now, he's included in this line. His grandson, Zerubbabel, plays a prominent role in the rebuilding of the temple in the book of Ezra. But if you follow the next few verses down the line, you will see the family line is traced generation after generation after generation until we come to verse 16. And it says this, "...Mathan, the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ." Now, maybe you see why King Jehoiachin, it was so important that he was alive. The fact that he was alive at the end was the spark that lit the flame that gets us to Jesus. The fact that he was alive shows us God's faithfulness in preserving the royal line of David, the promise he kept to King David. The fact that he was alive gives us hope because our heavenly father kept his promise to send us a redeemer, a savior, our king of hope, who would be born in a manger as a baby and who would die a death on a cross to save us from our sins. See, our God is so faithful. He is so faithful. He can even help us rediscover Christmas in Babylon, even though... In our lives, it might feel like the walls of Jerusalem are destroyed. Even though the city is overrun, he says, hope is here. Out of the ashes of Jerusalem, the lion was preserved so the baby could be born. And one day he will return as the conquering king to make all things right. This empowering hope reminds me of a great story from this whole COVID-19 pandemic. Did anybody hear about, about Captain Tom? Right, in all the doom and gloom of the pandemic, Captain Tom actually arose as a hero, and an unlikely hero. Tom Moore, you can see him on the screen here, or Captain Sir Tom Moore, since he was knighted by the Queen of England, is the 100-year-old man who single-handedly raised $40 million for the British healthcare system by walking 100 laps around his garden. That's right, 100 laps for 100 years. So what started as a challenge from his son-in-law to donate a dollar per lap, technically a pound in England, um, went viral when his daughter posted the campaign on an online charity site. And the news spread quickly, and suddenly this World War II veteran, gripping his walker, wearing his navy blue blazer decorated with his military medals, walking around his garden, became a national hero. Captain Tom was an inspiration in fact, he says, "When the whole pandemic is done, he wants to go travel the world. <laughs> I hope I'm that spry when I turn 100 years old. But there's a great lesson of hope in his story. Listen to this. What Captain Tom told reporters, he said this. He said, "The first step was the hardest." After that, I got into, I got into the swing of it and kept on going. The first step was the hardest. And isn't that true for so many things for us? Isn't isn't that true for hope? The first step is the hardest. It can be so hard to lift our downcast, tear-filled eyes to look for that tiny spark of hope when we feel swallowed by our pain. It can seem so difficult to reach beyond our troubles and grasp the Lord's outstretched hand. It can feel so impossible to take that first step toward hope when you're weighted down by your burdens. And I want to ask you this morning, what is the next step for you? What is your next step? As we finish our time today, I want to suggest that there's two next steps that we should take. First, we need to take a next step to bring hope to others during Advent. And maybe that looks like sending extra notes of encouragement this Christmas season Maybe it looks like giving to organizations that help those in need, like a a feeding hands or a relief bus or a Market Street mission. What is your next step to bring hope to others? But secondly, I would encourage you to take a next step for yourself. Over the last year, I've experienced some anxiety, far more than I ever have in my life. And this year, I want to take the time to rediscover Christmas and the God who is in control and offers the hope that I need. This year, I want to do that. Author Rebecca Lyons uh, wrote a book called Rhythms of Renewal Trading Stress and Anxiety for a Life of Peace and Purpose. And in the book, she's transparent about her own struggle with anxiety. One of the ways she says she combats anxiety is by taking an inventory of her life through prayer and journaling before Jesus. And she offers four questions to consider as she takes her inventory, and I want to challenge us to, to maybe pray through these questions during this Advent season, especially as we come to the end of a year like 2020. So here's four, four quick questions to think about as you journal and you pray. The first question she offers is this, what's right? right? In other words, what keeps me aware of and especially grateful for the gifts in my life? Because it's impossible to be anxious and grateful at the same time. They're actually on different neural pathways. Secondly, she says, ask what's wrong, right? Where have you veered off course this year? And more specifically, where have you stopped hoping and trusting in Jesus? Third, what's, what's confused, right? This helps us isolate those rabbit trails we go down. And so we should ask questions like, am I investing in my children, Are Christian friendships a priority? Am I seeing the world through the prism of God's word? Because perhaps we're so anxious because we're we're not seeing the world as God sees the world. And then finally, she says, ask what's missing. And this question requires me to ask other people who know me best to evaluate my life. Right? A spouse, a close friend, a spiritual mentor, a counselor. Perhaps we're missing out on the life that God has for us because we can't see what we need. So maybe you want to take a picture of that and, or jot down those questions. But this is my challenge. As we rediscover Christmas this season, as hope returns in the midst of our disasters, may we ground ourselves in, again in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which tells us that our worth is found in Him. Our worth is found in in him. So let me offer just one final image as we close. We started this message talking about crushed soda cans. We all have experienced disaster. But in the midst of disaster, hope is born through that spark of that match I mentioned. And that flame grows as we realize the hope we have in Christ. And so I want to end today by bringing us to the light of Bethlehem. Now every year, normally we have Advent wreath candles up here, and this is the candle for the Hope Week. And we light these candles every year to remind us of the story of Advent, that the light of Bethlehem came, the light of the world was literally born in the city of David to bring hope into our lives. It only takes that spark to light the match and to reignite the hope. That is within us, that is offered to us. <laughs> the hope candle brings us to Bethlehem and reminds us that hope is here, that hope came in the form of a baby. He came for us. The writer of the Hebrews puts it this way now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And hope. It's not a nebulous idea. It is assured. It is grounded. It is true. God is faithful to fulfill his promises to us just as he did to David and his line. Hope is here. Yes, it's been a hard year. <laughs> yes, our walls have crashed down around us. Yes, it can feel like we're under attack. But this Advent, let's rediscover the wondrous mystery of Christmas, as we follow that light to Bethlehem where the light of the world was born. He is our hope, and he is the answer to our longings. And this year, maybe, just maybe, we can have Christmas even in Babylon. Let me pray for us. I'll invite the worship team to come back on stage for one final song in response. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you that you, Lord Jesus, are indeed the light of the world. You're the light in our darkness. Even when it feels like the walls have crashed around us, like the city has been breached, like the line of kings is gone, you light the spark that leads to hope, Lord, because you're a God of hope. You're a God who rescues. You're a God who loves. You're a good God. You're a God who protects. You're a God who keeps his promises. Help us to find our hope in you as we discover the wondrous mystery of Christmas all over again this year. We pray that in Jesus' precious name. Amen.